I want to talk to you tonight about the supremacy of Christ. What do I mean by the supremacy of Christ? I mean that there is none higher, there is none greater, there is none better than Jesus. In all things, Paul said, it is necessary that Jesus has the preeminence. There is none higher, there is none greater, there is none better. To him belongs all of the honor and the praise and the glory and the kingdom because of who he is. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. John says, all things were made by him and for him, and without him there is nothing made that is made. He made every, every neutron, every proton, every electron, and every crouton. And every salad bar there ever is, I'm telling you, that's what Jesus did. No, the Bible says that he holds all things together by the power of his word. That is amazing. When you consider how immense the universe is, that Jesus is literally the power source behind every single star and every single planet. And there are billions of stars in the galaxy. And there are billions of galaxies in the universe. And the one whom we call Savior and Lord, he holds it all together. Now, now let me ask you this question. Is he the kind of person that you invite into your life to be your assistant? Let me say it this way. A few years back, probably maybe more than a few years, maybe about 20 years back, so that predates many of you here tonight, but there was like this fed that was going on. Christians were, they plastered bumper stickers all over the back of their cars, you know, and some of them were really cheesy. Some of them were really terrible, like, you know, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. You know, I, I don't know what value there was in that, but uh, another one was, was uh, what was it? I just had a brain. Oh, yeah. Uh, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. You know, have you ever seen that one? Uh, it's terrible. Uh, we, we are much more than just forgiven. In fact, we, we have been made perfect by the Son of God. We're way more than just forgiven. But, but one of the other bumper stickers that used to drive me crazy when I saw it was that it said this, Jesus is my co-pilot. Jesus is my co-pilot. I mean, I, are you kidding me? Jesus is sitting next to you and he's helping you steer the car or he's helping you steer your life? The, the one who, who holds the universe is your assistant? No, no. Is that the kind of person that becomes your co-pilot or is, or, or is he the person before whom we fall at our feet and worship him and devote our lives to the one who gave so much for us, who gave it all for us? Now, I, I say that, that Jesus is the one whom we love and adore because of who he is, not just for all the great things that he has done. So, so Jesus has the supremacy, which means that he is greater. Uh, the book of Hebrews is, is written to show that Jesus is greater. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the prophets. He's great. He, listen, the prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, but Jesus came and is the Lord. He's greater than Joshua. Joshua was able to bring the people into the land of promise, but he could never provide for them a lasting rest. Jesus has come to me. And I will give you rest for your souls. Something that only God can provide. 
Jesus is better than the sacrifices. All of the sacrifices in the Old Testament were just types and shadows pointing to the ultimate sacrifice that would one day be offered as the perfect sacrifice that would forever sanctify or set apart those who are being made holy. Perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's the sacrifice of Jesus. He's better than the, the priesthood. He's, we, ha, we have a better promise based upon, upon better promises or we have a better covenant based upon better promises. And so everything about Jesus is greater. Everything about Jesus is better. There is none higher. There is none greater than him. Now I could, I could probably spend most of the time tonight talking to you from the book of Hebrews about why Jesus is better, why he's greater, why he's greater than, than Moses, why he's greater than Joshua, all of these different people. But, but I believe with all my heart, for me, that the grandeur of Jesus is not seen in his being the star maker, and he is. It's not being the one who spoke the universe into existence, and he is. To me, the supremacy of Jesus is most clearly seen in his humility and lowliness, in taking upon himself the form of a servant. See, because everything in, in the dichotomy of the kingdom of God is upside down from what we know. Like, for instance, the last shall be first in the kingdom of God, and the first shall be last. The, the, the way to, to greatness is whoever will be the least of all and the servant of all will be the greatest of all. That's the kingdom of God. And there's no one, there's no one who made himself the least of all. There's no one who made himself the servant of all like the one whom we call Jesus and Savior. And so in my mind, there is no greater measure of the greatness and the grandeur of Jesus than in his humility and voluntary weakness, his limiting himself. The one who spoke the world into existence, limited himself in time and space. The one who created time and space came and limited himself within the parameters of time and space. To me, that is, that is, that is awesome. That is incredible. Spurgeon said it like this. The master of all heaven's majesty came down to be the victim of all man's misery. The master of all heaven's majesty came down to be the victim of all man's misery. He is the king of sorrows. He is the man of sorrows acquainted with our grief. We hid as if it were our faces from him. He, he was despised and rejected of men. The misery that Jesus experienced was all voluntary. The incarnation is referred to by theologians as the hypostatic, the hypostatic union that is the union between God and man coming in the one person of the God-man, Christ Jesus. This idea, this, this thought of God becoming man, God be lowering himself and becoming, being found in the form of a servant would be appalling. It would be, it would be offensive. It would be an insult to angels had they not seen it for themselves with their own eyes. Wonderment must have filled heaven as the news spread among the angelic order this is what God was about to do. God was about to become one of his own creation. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing in creation to compare this to. If I, if I, became, if I became an animal, if I, if I entered into the body of a, of a dog, it would, still be, it would still be creature to creature, but, but there's nothing to compare God, eternal creator, Becoming one with his creation. There, there, there's, there is no comparison to this. 
neither has it ever entered into the minds of men or of angels the, the distance to which the Son of God would, would travel, would traverse from the throne of the universe to that of a manger, to that of a, of a stable. Who could measure the, the distance? I was thinking about this, this, this past week with all of the news that's been uh, taking place about what's happening in the Middle East and with Syria and with uh, this group called ISIS or ISIL, however you want to call it. And I was wondering, I was wondering, what would I do if God called me to go to Syria? What would I do if God called me to go preach to, to, to ISIS? The, 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 these are the people who, who behead children, who, who beheaded the American journalist last week. These are people who put the eyes out of little, little children, who, who refuse to join them. And yet that's the very same barbaric and brutal people in the first century to whom God the Father sent his son. And Jesus didn't hesitate to come. And he didn't refuse to come and to become the ransom for our salvation. When we talk about we talk about these strange things that are happening in, in different parts of the world. You know, think about think about tyrants and think about dictators, and, and uh, we've seen we've seen them come and then we've seen them go. And I, and I think probably one of the world's most notorious tyrants was was Adolf Hitler during World War II. I mean, if you know a little bit about about the history of World War II, I mean the responsibility he had for the death of so many millions of Jewish people as well as Christians. But one of the, one of the funny things about him as an egotist and, 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 and as, as somebody who was an absolute narcissist, and you could tell a lot about, about Hitler by, by this particular example, one of the things that he, he wanted was a chauffeur to drive him around, and he, he, he interviewed more than 30 different chauffeurs or, or drivers that would become life, a lifelong driver to Adolf Hitler. So what was he looking for? Was he looking for skill? Was he looking for ability? Was he looking for you know, somebody with keen eyesight, somebody with great reflexes? No. He sought someone and he chose someone who was ultimately about this much shorter than he was. He, he wasn't a tall man to begin with, but he, he chose somebody who was so short that, that he had to be propped up with blocks on his seat just so that he could see over the steering wheel. I would suppose, I would suppose that whenever the chauffeur came around to open the door for the Fuhrer, he somehow had his ego stroked by being bigger and greater than his chauffeur. You know, there were people like that. There were, pe- there were people who, who, who make themselves feel bigger and make themselves feel better by making others feel smaller. And Jesus Christ did the very exact opposite. He who was the high and lofty one in the incarnation lowered himself so that, so that we might come to know the love of God and the heart of God in a way that would have been otherwise impossible to know had he not condescended to become a human being. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Someone said it like this. You can tell whether you are becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like one. That's, that's such a good statement. You can tell whether you're becoming a servant by how you act when people treat you like a servant. 
See, one of the things is that we don't mind serving. But by the way, we, we've got an amazing team of, of, of servants in this house. And, and they really are to be commended. The worship team did a, just a great job tonight. And the greeting team always does great work. And the, the different teams. I just love the, the people that I serve along with here in this ministry. But, but sometimes when, when we choose to serve, you know, it's okay if we're in control. We, 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 we decide when we're going to serve. We decide who we're, going to, who we're going to serve. And we decide how we're going to serve, Right? And as long as there's some recognition or some appreciation, we'll continue to serve. But, but, but Jesus did not serve because he had a prerequisite that he would be appreciated. In fact, he was despised and rejected. In fact, what we discover is that Jesus did not serve to meet his own needs, but rather Jesus served to meet our needs. And that was at the heart of his service. He said, I've come not to be served, but to serve and to give my life for the ransom for many. Now, what makes this so incredible? The reason why Jesus, and I'm saying that he has the supremacy, he has in all things the preeminence is because of his pre-existent splendor and majesty before he condescended to our human likeness, to be joined to a human body and a soul and a, and a, and a real human being. The splendor that he had before that, that, that's the distance to which the Son of God went and condescended to become one with us so that he might ransom us and redeem us from, from sin and from Satan and from the power of death. Listen to what Packer says. He says, the impression of Jesus, which the Gospels give, is not so much one of deity reduced as divine capacities restrained. In other words, the attributes that Jesus had, he didn't lose them. He just restrained them. He restricted them. R.C. says it this way, the father did not strip the son of his eternal glory, but the son agreed to lay it aside temporarily for the sake of salvation. He, we're going to look at a verse in a minute that says he emptied himself. And so one of the greatest portions of Scripture, Philippians chapter 2. Paul the Apostle wants us to get an understanding of the distance to which the Son of God traveled or traversed so that he might become the Savior of the human race. Listen to this, Philippians chapter 2. These are great verses. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. One translation says... Let this same attitude be in you that was also in Christ. It's a call. If you look at the context, Paul is talking to the Philippians and he's, in, he's trying to encourage them to adopt an attitude of humility. Don't think too highly of yourself. Think about others as better than yourselves. And so, and so Paul is calling them to a state of humility. Who, he says, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. One translation says he made himself of no reputation. In the obscurity of 30 years, 30 years, Jesus lived in absolute obscurity. Could you, could you imagine the, the creator of the universe living among us in, in such incognito that, that nobody, nobody knew? who he was. He came into his own and his own received him not. 
But being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I love the word therefore. The word therefore, whenever you come across that in scripture, you can think of it like a a column of, of numbers and draw a line underneath that and, and then this is, the, this is the sum of what has just been said. Therefore God, because of everything that Paul just said, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The one whom we sing about, who gave himself, who gave it all for us, is none other than the visible splendor of God that has been concealed for this brief moment of time. He didn't consider the equality with the Father as something to be held on to, something to be grasped. But he emptied himself. What does it mean, he emptied himself? Some some people have made different suggestions. Different commentators make different suggestions. I, I don't think he emptied himself of anything. He emptied himself. He placed himself in a human body. He placed himself in a human being, in an authentic, genuine man. And, and one of the ways that we can kind of understand this, first let me say this, what it does not mean is that he did not cease to be God. God could never cease to be anything less than God because you and I can never become God. And so it is ludicrous to even imagine that, that he ceased even for a small amount of time to, to not be God. No, no, th- that is impossible. But he became something in the fullness of time that he wasn't before, and that was to be joined to our humanity. And as such, let me try to, let me try to explain this. He, he never stopped being God. He, his, his glory was still there, but it was, it was hidden. It was concealed. It was, it was not being revealed. Now, now, now think, about, think about this. Think about an eclipse of the sun. The sun, right, shining in its, in its brightness could never stop shining in its brightness. I mean, unless it burnt out, but, but, but the sun, right, when there's an eclipse of the sun, there is something that comes in the way of it. The moon eclipses the sun and there's darkness and you cannot see the light of the, the glory of the sun because of the the body that is in front of it. And so Jesus, clothed in a human body, concealed, but for a brief moment on the Mount of Transfiguration when he was speaking with Moses and Elijah about his decease that was to be accomplished in Jerusalem, his, his glory could not be concealed in that moment, but his garments began to shine brighter than that, the scripture says, of the sun. And they beheld his glory. This is the person that we sing about, that we worship, that has is, that is come to give himself as a ransom for many. What Paul is doing is he is emphasizing the radical, far-reaching the dimensions of his selflessness. That it's not that he became less than God or that God somehow ceased to be God. No, no, he became man. That is the way in which he emptied himself. 
and voluntary weakness and humility by becoming the sacrifice for us. And you know, this this sacrifice of Jesus didn't begin at the cross and it didn't begin in Pilate's courtyard and it didn't even begin in Caiaphas where, where he was abused and punched and he was spit upon. No, no, that's not the beginning of his suffering. The beginning of his humility and his suffering was to be found in a manger, in the, in the dependence of, a, of an infant upon human beings to care for and nurture and to raise and to develop. And as Jesus grew in wisdom and in favor and stature with God and with man, his, his experience is just like our experience. When he was born, he didn't know who he was. Just as you were born and you didn't know who you were, you had to discover your history, your background. And the Holy Spirit attending to Jesus over the period of time as he began to grow and mature because he emptied himself of that, those attributes of God. The Holy Spirit began to reveal to him his purpose and his identity and his mission. And he embraced that mission for the love that he has for sinners like you and me. Where somebody says, well, well how, how did he do all those amazing things? How did he walk on water? How did he raise the dead? How did he, how did he cast out demons? He did it as a man filled with the Holy Spirit. You remember some of the things that he said? He said, I only do those things I see my father do. And he says, if I, by the spirit of God, cast out demons, then know that the spirit of God, that was the kingdom of God has come upon you. He did it as a man dependent upon God. Something that we are only learning now how to do, how to be dependent, how to yield our lives. We sang that song, Lord, I surrender. I loved all those songs that we sang in that, by the way. I mean, they are just so complimentary to this message that we might decrease and that he might increase. For there's none higher, there's none greater than Jesus. But really, coming, coming to this portion of Scripture, as great as it is, it comes to a climax with the decisive word servant. Really, it, it would be better translated slave. That Jesus not only humbled himself by becoming a man, he not only humbled himself by becoming a servant, he went beyond that to become, to become so humble that he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross, meaning the, the, the most brutal form of execution that you can think of, only reserved for the scum of the earth. The, it was a felon's death that Jesus died for us. And it had to be because that is the only way, the only means whereby men must be saved was through the cross, through the shedding of his blood. For without the shedding of his blood, there would be no remission of, sh- of sins. And, and this is absolutely shocking. This is absurd to think that the Messiah would go from the highest height to the lowest low of being nailed to a cross naked, crucified, far worse than than even the idea of being beheaded. The brutality that Jesus endured, he did it voluntarily. He did it. He did it because it was the only way that you and I could be saved. 
But Paul doesn't end there. I love it. Paul, Paul takes us back to the throne once again, and he tells us that because of what Jesus did, therefore God has exalted Jesus. Well, where, where is he exalted? Where is he? Li- He's at the right hand of majesty on high. He is now seated upon the throne of the universe. There is a man, the man Christ Jesus, who, who is forever in the identity of the man Christ Jesus who is now seated upon the throne of the universe and who rules the universe. And the great news for us is that we become heirs of God and join heirs with Christ. This whole universe belongs to those of us who are in Christ. So if you're here this, tonight and, and, and you don't have a relationship with Christ, come on, get with it. He's he's promised not only eternal life, but the quality of eternal life is beyond imagination. No eye has seen, no ears heard, neither has it entered into the hearts of men. The amazing things that God has in store for those that love him. And that's what we have to look forward to. But let me tell you what is so ironic about this message. What's so ironic about this message is that at the heart of Adam's temptation was his quest, was his, was his ambition, was his, was his thirst to, to lay hold of deity, for you shall become as God, knowing good and evil. That, that, that was at the heart of to become equal with God. And yet Jesus Christ, who was very God, chose rather the, the, the road of, of selflessness rather than self-aggrandizement. Jesus told chose rather the course of sacrifice rather than promotion and made himself of no reputation. You know, I say that humility is, is, is so elusive. It's a paradox. The moment, the moment you think that you're humble, you're not. I mean, the moment you think you finally arrived, you haven't. You know, I, I said this morning, nobody's ever written a book Humility and how I achieved it doesn't work that way. Here's the amazing thing is that Jesus humbled himself to the point of the death of the cross for love's sake. This is the, this is the, the greatest love story ever told. This is the greatest story ever told. There's there's none better than this. I want to kind of close. I want to to sum up uh, a little paragraph from uh, Max Lucado who talks about the fact that God loves us, the star maker. He he looks at us and he he loves us. And I want to just jump to this point where it says, stepping from the throne, he removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin pigmented human skin. The light of the universe entered into the dark womb of a virgin. He whom angels worship nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant and was birthed into the cold night and then slept on cow's hay. Mary, he says, Mary didn't know whether to feed him or whether to praise him. And so she did both because she figured that he was both hungry and holy. Max says, Joseph didn't know whether to call him junior or, or father, but he called him Jesus since that was the name that the angel gave to him. And since he didn't have the foggiest idea of what to call a God whom you can cradle in your arms. 
And then he says, God speaking, can anything make me stop loving you? Watch me speak your language, sleep on your earth, feel your hurts. Behold the maker of sight and sound as he sneezes and coughs and blows his nose. You wonder if I understand how you feel. Look into the dancing eyes of the kid in Nazareth. That's God walking to school. Ponder the toddle at Mary's table. That's God spilling his milk. You wonder how long my love will last? Find that answer in the splinted cross on a craggy hill. That's me you see there. Your maker, your God, nailed, bleeding, covered in spit and sin-soaked. That's your sin I'm feeling. That's your death I'm dying. That's your resurrection I'm living. And then he says, that's how much I love you. That's how much I love you. Do, do you know that? If you, if you know that God loves you in this way, you can go through anything. You can go through any trial, any storm, suffer any, any amount of adversity. For nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ. So I ask you again in closing, is this, the kind of, is this the kind of person that you ask to be your co-pilot, to, to help you as an assistant be the, be the person in your life, or, or do you fall at his feet and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father? I suggest to you that we have no greater place than to be at his feet. I said earlier today, that when John, so relaxed in the presence of Jesus, laid his head on the chest of Jesus while they were reclining at supper, but when John sees him now in Revelation chapter 1, in his majestic glory, he falls at his feet as though he were dead. When Thomas says, I'm not going to believe until I see the nail prints in his hands, and, and then, and then when, when Jesus says, come and, come and put your hands in, in my prints, and Thomas falls at his feet and says, my Lord and my God, that's where we belong at the feet of Jesus in adoration and love and appreciation for all that he's done. See, here's here's what I believe is the logic behind this message. The logic behind this message, if this is true, if this is the person that died for me, that that took my sins upon himself, then, then the logic is this, that if one died for all, for me, then I should no longer live for myself. I can no longer live selfishly, but to live unto him who died for me. That's the logic. That's the conclusion that every single one of us must come to. And I hope, I hope, I hope that every single person here has come to that conclusion. But if not, I want to I just give you that, that understanding that your life can be placed in his hands. If I had a basketball in my hand right now, you know, just imagine it's right there, you know, big, it's orangey, it's got lines in it, you know, it bounces, you know, like that. Right? If I had a basketball in my hand, that basketball would be worth about maybe $25. But in the hands of Michael Jordan, over the course of his career, that basketball is worth a half a billion dollars with all of his endorsements and all of his earnings. If I had a baseball in my hand, a hardball, baseball, that baseball would be worth about $5 in my hands, but in the hands of somebody like Jeta, it would be worth millions. 
Is that, is that not right? Would, would, it, would it not be worth a lot more than five bucks? If I had a tennis racket in my hand, tennis racket in my hand would be worth about 200 bucks. But in the hands of Pete Sapras, it would be worth 14 different winnings, titles, trophies. My life in my hands, your life in your hands, not worth that much. But if I put my life in the hands of Jesus, it would be of infinite worth and infinite value. They could do amazing things with a baseball and a basketball and and a tennis racket. But what amazing things can God do with a life that he has redeemed by his blood? I want to challenge you tonight to put your life in the hands of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much that we can trust the star maker, that we can trust the one whose hands have been Now to the tree. This is the demonstration of your love for us, that you have loved us with an unconditional love and you love us still. In spite of all of our failures, in spite of all of our faults, you love us and you came to buy us, to redeem us, to purchase us. So I pray tonight, Father, if there's anyone here hearing this gospel message today for the first time, maybe in in a way that they understand it, better, would you, would you open their hearts and would you respond to Jesus by simply inviting him to come into your heart and into your life? If you would do that, if you would do that, he can make something of great worth and value out of your life. I promise you that. Amen.